Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode three of 2020 Psych. Thank you guys so much for tuning in once again. I hope you guys enjoyed last week's episode. Dad, any um, callbacks to last week's episode? Anything else you feel like we might need to say? Well, I know we talked a little bit about cannabis and uh, social media, and there was a lot to cover in, in those two topics. Uh, addiction is something that we can surely expand on, and, and I think we'll touch on it a bit today. Uh, but there's just so many things to talk about, and we want to get some feedback from our audience to see what qu- questions and concerns they have, and we'd love to follow up with uh, anything that may be pertinent to, to help them with this very serious uh, and, and profound topic. Yeah, I think that's something that we want to emphasize with everyone that if you listen to one of our episodes and you would like us to expand more on something, feel free to send us a message on Instagram. That's currently how we are communicating with our followers. So if there's anything that you hear from previous episodes that you want us to expand or you might have some more questions, like I said, feel free to write in. So, Dad, this week, um, I wanted to go ahead and talk about two pretty important things, um, 5150 and self-diagnosis. I think they can go hand in hand at times, Um, but I wanted to start off with what is a 5150? A 5150 is a legal, involuntary hold of an individual that is deemed uh, by someone who's designated by the Department of Mental Health, the local Department of Mental Health, uh, as a danger to themselves, others, or gravely disabled. Grave disability is defined as someone who is unable to provide for food, clothing, or shelter secondary to a mental illness. Typically, those that write these holds are psychiatrists, uh, law enforcement uh, officers, including uh, designated mobile response teams from uh, police agencies, and other individuals that include social workers, nurses, and others that are certified to place someone on this particular type of hold. Uh, So one thing I want to ask is, how does someone end up on a 5150 so it's anyone anyone can end up on a 5150 how what are the biggest incidents that could could play someone on a 5150 and what is the smallest incident well let me clarify this a little bit further when these legal holes are written their patients are placed in psychiatric units or wards in Uh, medical centers and and other facilities. So uh, facilities that are designated to have patients that are uh, on involuntary holds are usually the the hospitals or psychiatric uh, wards uh, where patients can be housed uh, for usually a 72-hour period initially uh, where uh, a psychiatric team... uh, will evaluate a patient during that time to see if the patient needs an extended hold. But typically, 
the patients that are coming into at least the hospital where where I practice are bought in by law enforcement. And these are individuals that sometimes are found in the street. They can be acting in a bizarre manner. It's not unusual for them to be under the influence of various drugs, uh, including uh, amphetamines and cannabis. It's usually that combination that that we see that patients are brought into the hospital because of their having uh, and they're intoxicated under the the influence of those two substances, and they may or may not have a pre-existing uh, mental disorder as well. So it can be uh, a variety of things. Something that can be so uh, outlandish, like somebody climbing up a traffic pole, a traffic light pole because they think that there's wild animals chasing them, to someone walking on the freeway thinking that somebody's after them. Uh, so there's just so many instances and situations that uh, that can land somebody on a on a involuntary legal psychiatrical. What about someone? I think maybe the more common that people might relate to is maybe someone that is depressed or attempts has a suicide attempt. Are those people that often like get put on fifty one fifties? Yes, sometimes when someone attempts suicide and overdose and either them, either they themselves or somebody else will call 911 uh, and law enforcement uh, comes over with the paramedics and they'll uh, either ask the patient do they want to come over voluntarily uh, and if they don't agree with the voluntary admission then they'll go ahead and, and place them on, on that legal hole and take them to the the closest emergency room. So what are your, let's say, I find myself on a 5150, what are my rights as a patient? And what can I do to like, what can I do if I need to pull myself out of a situation where I don't feel like I need to be on a voluntary hold? Do you ever have patients like that that come in and either are sane enough where they feel like they don't need a volunteer involuntary hold or they just don't want to be there well at least in the state of California patients can be evaluated for up to 72 hours whether the patient likes it or not and oftentimes patients feel that they don't really need to be in the hospital and they may argue Uh, they certainly can call patients rights but it's up to the discretion of the psychiatrist to terminate the whole early or not. But for the most part, the psychiatrist can see the patient through at least 72 hours and, if necessary, extend the hold uh, further. But at least uh, there's a 72-hour detention period that the patient uh, cannot really be discharged unless the the treating psychiatrist feels that it's appropriate. Legally, how long can someone stay in an involuntary hold? Well, if the whole, if the initial hold gets extended, they can possibly be at some point even conserved and stay in the hospital or an institution for years. So it's not always a short stay, sometimes it needs to be prolonged, though the vast majority of, of uh, 
I would say inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations are, are crisis intervention-like that will last only a few days. Can we go back to patient rights and let's say someone does feel like they're placed on a wrongful hold, what legal actions can they take if they're involuntarily placed? Well, all local departments of mental health have a patient's right agency and the the patient's right at agencies will advocate for patients and they will come to the hospitals and assess to see if the hospitals have the legal right to keep the patient in the hospital against their will. So the patients, of course, do have rights and the rights are respected by the hospitals. So sometimes when patients feel that they've been wrongfully placed on an initial hold, we'll uh, reach out to a patient's right advocate and there are definitely ways that the, that the, the legal hold, involuntary hold, can be terminated. And that does, that does happen. Uh, uh, it's unfrequent that that does happen. Also, I want to ask for people that are on the family side of things, if you have a family member that's in on a 5150 of some kind, what is there? Can you visit them? Uh, what's something that a family member should be aware of? Well, first and foremost, the privacy of the patient needs to be respected. So the patient has to authorize or give consent for family or friends to be able to be made aware that they're first of all in the hospital and they, the patient has to give consent to the the health treatment team to uh, to be able to disclose information about them. So because of issues of confidentiality, uh, the patient first has to be able to give permission to for the hospital staff to, to speak to anybody about uh, their care. Of course, they are allowed visitors, they are allowed phone calls, uh, but one thing is that they're not allowed are cell phones or electronic devices because of the same privacy issues for their peers and themselves, actually. I wanted to ask about the legal aftermath of a 5150. Let's say you do get placed on one. What does that do for your future like applying to jobs? Is that something that goes on your record? What what does that do? Well, again, all, all medical records are protected by HIPAA and confidentiality, though if you are placed on, a, on an involuntary psychiatric hold, the Department of Justice wants to know uh, because you're, you're not allowed to purchase a firearm for five years. So that's one of the, the things that... Uh, hospitals are forced to report to the DOJ uh, that they are placed on a 5150 so they won't be able to purchase uh, firearms. Okay, now I want to backtrack a little bit to a topic, the topic of self-diagnosis, because I think it is tied to 5150s. Um, And in your experience, has self-diagnosed when a patient has come in self-diagnosed is it accurate or 
or not, and usually it isn't. Um, and it's sort of difficult to be able to self-diagnose, uh, and it's usually best left to the hands of experts, though you can look up certain symptoms lists and, and diagnostic criteria, but more often than not, patients will come in typically saying, say for example, they have bipolar disorder, and usually that's very inaccurate. Uh, so there are some perils in being able to uh, self-diagnose and also self-treat, which is even a little more uh, uh, challenging. So, um, but because people look up in the internet, they look up certain diagnoses and they feel, look, I mean, I know I meet the criteria for that, but in actuality, that's, it, it's seldom the case. At least that's been uh, my experience. Okay, because I feel like personally, I have a lot of friends that have self-diagnosed in the past. And I also just feel like it's kind of the culture of my generation. And maybe that's, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on it. Cause it's like, are we more self-aware of ourselves? And that's why we feel compelled to make these um, very serious self-diagnoses or like, what's the difference between being self-aware and then self-diagnosing yourself? I think that'd be really interesting to talk about. Well, it's actually an interesting topic because I think in the United States, uh, most primary care physicians are guilty of not being aware of uh, mental health. And I say that because there's so many uh patients that do suffer from mental illness, particularly, say, depression, that go undiagnosed. And I know that in Europe, such as in England, in the United Kingdom, where they have the National Health Service, their doctors seem to be a lot more in tune with uh, mental illness that we are here in America. And they are actually responsible for managing most of the psychiatric uh, uh, issues that their patients have. And I know that the psychiatrists will only get referred cases that go into the hospital and more challenging cases. And I think that speaks a lot to um, the lack of mental health awareness in the United States. I think that many uh, of our, even our specialists like our OBGYN doctors fail to recognize postpartum depression. And really it's a shame because it's our, that's uh, it, a huge uh, patient population that gets neglected. and. And so if you're forced to self-diagnose, it's, maybe it's because your doctors aren't helping you with, uh, uh, with that issue of, of diagnosing, which it really it should be their responsibility. So I put a lot of that uh, lack of uh, awareness and where people or patients have to attempt to self-diagnose because they're their clinicians, their doctors aren't doing that for them. So I think that what's more prudent is that if you feel like if if you have a, a, a problem, some emotional issues, well, get some help. Reach out. Reach out with some professionals. Don't try to do this by yourself because that's not always the best uh, way to go. I think it's interesting you bring up the practices in the UK and how the primary care doctors, you know, that's mental health is something that they also 
are mindful of. I can talk about my personal experience. I was diagnosed with depression in fall 2016. At the same time, I was diagnosed with PCOS. And when I went to the OBGYN, um, that those dots weren't connected. And it's something that I later had to find out myself when I did my own research on my disorder, uh, PCOS, that I found out that it's common for women with PCOS to be diagnosed with depression. So I just think like, I think it's interesting that healthcare in America, there's no emphasis on the holistic being. There's no mind. I feel like there's no mind-body connection in our healthcare, and I think the mind has so much to do with your physical health, and is such your physical health is also oftentimes a reflection of your mental health, um, and that's something that I personally didn't realize until I was very much older and had to go through my own personal experiences with my mental health journey and my physical health journey that I figured out like oh, it's connected. Oh, it all matters. Um, So with that, I want to ask, how do you, how does someone start doing research on a disorder that they were diagnosed with? Where Where are good places to look? Where shouldn't they look? Where should they trust? Well, the best websites are really the, the ones that are evidence-based the one that I particularly like using is something called the TRIP database, which comes out of the, the, the United Kingdom. Though, I think what you're alluding to is really uh, educating yourself about what you have. And I th- really think that that's valuable for any patient to know as much as they can about their own condition. I've always felt that the more one knows about what they have, the better off they are in dealing with it. So it takes a great deal of initiative, but it is your health and you may wanna look into what you have. And I think that educational uh, material for any illness is important for any individual who's suffering from any given disease. It's important to self-educate, yes, and to try to get as much information as you can about what you have because I think that'll lead for a better understanding and hopefully a better outcome as well. How much should a patient lean on their doctor for post um, hospital visit, post 5150? Um, is there like, is there should there be emphasis on always following up with your doctor or what do you think is like the best thing for a patient to do? Well, when somebody is discharged from a psychiatric inpatient unit, it's prudent for them to have follow-up as quickly as possible. And unfortunately, that's not always the case, but often the opportunity is there for a patient to follow up soon. Uh, So, definitely it's a good idea to follow up as as quickly as you can or as soon as you can and discharge planners in the hospital will try their best to get an appointment as quickly or as soon as possible because of that importance of a quick follow-up and there's certain things called partial hospitalization programs which are great programs that, that are good 
for patients that have just been discharged from an inpatient unit because it allows for intense close follow-up. And these programs have been shown to prevent relapses of uh, somebody um, having to go back into a hospital, into a psychiatric unit. So clearly I think there's enough evidence that demonstrates that a sooner, the sooner the patient gets seen after their discharge, uh, the less likelihood that they're going to have to, number one, hurt themselves, and if that's not the reason they were admitted, and there's a greater chance that they will not get readmitted back into a psychiatric ward uh, if they have a, a close follow-up after their discharge. I want to just really quickly go back to the conversation of self-awareness versus like self-diagnosing, because I really feel it's very common for people my age, and what would you say for someone that hasn't been placed on 5150 before, has, has no prior history of psychiatric care, they are doing a lot of research, because, oh, this is actually something I wanted to talk about. There's a lot of, like, online tests that you can do, of, like, find out if you're a narcissist, things like that. Like, what do you say to the person that, like I said, no psychiatric care prior to this is on the internet doing a bunch of research. They're like, oh, I, I'm a narcissist. I'm a sociopath. I whatever. They're self-diagnosing. What's the best word, word of advice you could give to someone my age doing something like that? Well, that's interesting. For, for patients that are having some sort of impairment, then, and that sort of needs to be the key here. If you find that your emotional condition is impeding your ability to get along with others, uh, either at home, uh, in the workplace, at school, with your peers, if it's, it's if it's distracting you from moving forward with your life and whatever career goals you may have or personal aspirations that you have, then it may not be a bad idea to check in with the with the professional. That's I think would be the best uh, way to go about dealing with this. If you're really feeling that this is hampering your ability to move forward in your life, then it's, it's, that's really a time to, to, to check in with the professional. And I'm not saying that trying to educate yourself and maybe even assessing yourself, but if it's getting to the point where you feel that it's causing you distress, then it's probably a good idea to get some uh, profession, get an evaluation. Let me put it that way. Yeah, I think that's something that I also want to emphasize with everyone. Just you are the one you live with yourself every day you live with your thoughts you live with your actions you know yourself best and if you feel like something is wrong you are probably right and you should definitely get the answers you need by reaching out to healthcare professionals by reaching out to the national hotlines and finding those answers but definitely do not try to take matters into your own hands by self-diagnosing and trying to only self-heal and not really make sure you're leaning on your resources because they are available and they are out there and people want to help you well i think you bring up you alluded to a good point about self-healing and i know that there's a lot of treatments say even for depression that include things like fasting uh being in warm weather, like a sauna, steam, exercise. There's a lot of non-pharmacological treatments, including exercise that will help someone uh, get out of a depression. So there's a lot of things 
that an individual can do for themselves to make themselves feel better. And that's really important. That can't be overemphasized. But when you've tried those methods and they're not working, you may need a little more help, a little more professional guidance, be it some therapy, maybe some medications. So I think it's important for everyone to know that treatments are multifaceted and the more things that you're doing to help yourself, the better your outcome is, is likely to be. So overall, I'd like to just summarize and just recommend to those that feel that they're having some distress, some emotions that they can't bear, that they can't shake, or that they feeling troubled by, if you try self-healing and, and whatever it is that you're doing isn't helping, then at that point, I think it's a good idea to reach out for some professional guidance and, and maybe some therapy. Uh, but you, if you have that awareness that you're not feeling well inside, that something's bothering you that you just can't get rid of, no matter how you try, and it's causing you problems with your relationships and having even causing you some difficulties focusing because uh, you have a lot of stress and so forth, then it, that may be an indicator that or those are all indicators that you may need to get a little more help. And I would encourage anyone who is feeling that way to reach out to to try to get some get an evaluation and, and hopefully some therapy. Thank you guys so much for listening this week and tuning in. If you have any questions and want to hear more from us, feel free to message us. Thank you once again, and I hope you have a great day.